0: You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today.
1: Okay, well, let's get into the book of Amos. So you all read this last week. And um, so hopefully your minds are prepped and ready for this. So um, I, I really like this picture even because it, it really displays uh, what this book is about. Like it is, uh, I am Yahweh and hear me roar. Like this is God's um, battle cry, for the Israelites to come back to Him, to be restored, and so Amos really will be um, displaying that through his, through his, you know, I guess prophecies and speaking to the people. So if we move into the content of Amos, so. Um, what we, what we will find is that there is this huge issue of, um, of covenant infidelity. And so these are some big words, but we are going to break them down. So covenant infidelity in the form of religious synchronism and then social injustice. So what is covenant infidelity? Yeah, you're breaking the covenant. And they're doing it how? <laughs> with, the, with those two things, religious syncretism and then social injustice. And so what this religious syncretism is, which I have the definition right here for you, is that thinking that God can be worshipped alongside Baal, or another God. And so they can partner God with then any other religion and think, Oh, it's fine. It's no big deal. And so this syncretism is coming into the nation, it's coming into the way that they operate. And it's really impacting the way that they are interacting with one another with how they are living in society with how they're living in community. And we know from You know the first five books the Pentateuch how God was setting them up as a nation how he wanted them to be in relationship with him and then how he wanted them to be in relationship with one another and so we see that this is already a a breakdown has happened within their nation because of this because of this syncretism and so Amos really will be addressing their excessive pursuit of luxury, so that's why I have this picture here of this guy, you know, leaning up against the Rolls Royce car and with, you know, his expensive watch and nice suit on, um, because this is what they were after. Now it was this pursuit of luxury and really just thinking about themselves, self-indulgence. It was what they could get, and it was all at the expense of the poor. And so they were constantly oppressing the poor to to gain. Um, greater and greater amounts of wealth, influence. And so um, really, these are this luxury, self-indulgence, and this oppression are the things that characterized the time period that we're in right now with Amos. Okay, so especially with the Northern Kingdom, this is how the kingdom is operating. And really, the the saddest part about it is it's not just the common people, but it is the leaders of the nation that is doing this and their wives. So, the people who should be upholding the law, who should be saying, hey, guys, let's come back to the truth, none of them were doing that. It was all about what they could get for themselves and how they could really, um, yeah, better their own lives. But it was always at the expense of other people who were the widows, the orphans, and um, those that were poor. So, and a lot of times that would have been the foreigners also. So if we are looking at the structure, so this is sort of just like the the big picture of Amos. So if we're looking at the structure of this book, it really falls into these three divisions that we see. So the first one here is uh, really just the first two chapters. So it's a very short uh a part of this book. But it deals with eight prophecies and judgments that are um, with the surrounding nations, and I have them listed here. And so you can see that at the very beginning it says, this is what the Lord says to the people of Damascus. This is what the Lord says to the people of Gaza. And so he just keeps going through the different um, locations, naming off their sins and what they've done. And then the second part you'll see is um, a little bit longer. It's the majority of the book, and it is chapters three through six, and then chapters seven through nine. And I have it broken up because really it's talking about these, there's three sermons that are talked about in chapters three through six, and then there's five visions that Amos sees in seven through nine. And so we will be talking about them, so I'm not going to like break them down right now. But just so you know that this is the breakdown for the book. And then the third part ends with chapter 9, so the last five verses. And it's these promises that God has. It's that restoration of blessing. And so this is really talking about how, you know, the Messiah will uh, come and he will establish this earthly reign. And so this would be the, um, oops the salvation part, the salvation oracle that we'll talk about. So, um, and so I talked about structure last time, but you understand the breakdown. So if you're looking at Nelson's maps and charts, the structure is always that, that uh, box at the beginning of the book. And it has like, okay, these chapters mean this, these chapters mean this. And so it's teaching you how to, if you're going to, um, stop at a in the middle of a book reading that you'll want to stop in one of these sections because if you read the first chapter and then you wait two days to read chapter two then you're like okay what what's going on like what's happening so this helps you to to understand and break down the book a little bit more so that you keep it in context of what's happening so does that make sense okay i talked about that a little bit last time i was here but just want to reiterate it again because you've had a lot of information Okay, so with all of the um, excess of wealth and everything that was happening in this nation, there really was this standing against injustice that needed to take place. And so this is what happens in this book. And so I just have this question like, have you ever felt helpless in the face of overwhelming injustice? Yeah, no, yes. and yeah. I, I don't care. <laughs> um, yeah, I um, I remember even when I was starting out in YWAM. I I don't know if I told you all, but when um, after I did my DTS and we went on outreach, we went to uh, Thailand and Cambodia. And when we got to Cambodia, one of the first things that we started doing was working with. Um, People that had been rescued out of human trafficking, and so we were like, "Oh, let's let's do a lunch for them, you know, let's do uh, this, you know, get candy and all this kind of stuff." So we went into this nice restaurant in Cambodia, nice, and um, it had AC. <laughs> it was nice. Um, <laughs> so um, we went into this nice restaurant, and uh, we hadn't we hadn't met the girls before this we just we had this contact with uh this house that was uh had rescued these girls and so we were meeting them for the first time and when we came into the room all the girls that had been rescued out of trafficking were like six seven eight nine years old and this is who we were hosting that day and so i was really shocked And just like the youngest girl that had been rescued out of trafficking that was there was she was turning six and she had already been rescued. And um, to hear like the the people who were, I guess, like the house parents or whatever, who were running the ministry, they told us her story. And, you know, working with this issue, I worked with it for two and a half years after that. And this was an issue that I felt very unqualified to to work with because at that point, this was in 2007, 2008, and the number was 27 million were who were in, enslaved. And you think of a group of like five women who were like, let's do something. And then we're like, what, what we felt like we were doing, it felt like it was not making a difference at all. So we we felt really unqualified. I mean, I, I didn't really have a background in anything other than just feeling like I need to say something. I need to do something. I need to raise awareness about this. And so, um, yeah, we traveled around. We had coffee shop nights, did all these kind of things, but still it just felt like we were very unqualified because we didn't have law degrees. We weren't police officers. We didn't have any kind of, like, way to make a real difference. And so, um, I tell you this story because when you see such injustice in the world, you may think, wow, what can I do? And really, this story is just the same, because this story is about a man who is just as unqualified um, to speak a message, but he did it anyways. And so, um, yeah, I just encourage you that even if there's something that seems so daunting and so big that you don't know how you're going to master it, still be willing to take that first step because it's not that you have to reach the 27 million, but even if you affect one person's life, then you've impacted one person's life. And so um, so don't let the, I think, bigness or the overwhelming sense of the, the issue distract you or determine your, um, the way that you approach it because, or to stop you, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Don't let it stop you from doing it because to raise awareness about it or to try to make a difference. So, um, so yeah, through this man, Amos, I want to talk about him for a moment and who he really was. I mean, he was a shepherd. So you think about someone who is, doesn't feel qualified. I mean, he is out in the fields and watching after sheep. And so he is from Tekoa, which is in Judah. And so he will... Uh, be going and speaking to the northern kingdom, Israel, even though he is from Judah. And Amos, his name is derived from a Hebrew term meaning to lift a burden. And so in all reality, in all sense of the word, Amos's name means burden or burden bearer. And that is what he is doing in this book. He is bearing the burden of the Israelite nation of their sins and he is saying, listen guys, I have a message for you and I, you need to listen to me. And so really Amos is living up to his name because he was declaring judgment on this rebellious nation. And so in the timing of um, Amos and Micah, So they were talking to the Northern Kingdom of Israel. And we're not going to talk about Micah until tomorrow, but just to give you a little context for how they are like interwoven together, um, some of them. So Amos and Micah were talking to the Northern Kingdom of Israel, but they were 30, they spoke 30 years before the nation would actually fall. So if when, what year did Israel go into exile? 722, correct. So they were 30 years before before, um, Israel actually fell. And so I've already said Amos comes from Judah, but God has called him to go into the Northern kingdom. And so Amos is probably most likely delivering these oracles at the religious center in Bethel. And so you know that when uh, the kingdom split with Rehoboam, reigning in the south, and Jeroboam, he took over the north. That Jeroboam then set up uh, the, the altars or the golden calves. And or this the calf images. It wasn't golden calves, but the calf images in Bethel and in Dan. And so this would, and Bethel is most likely where Amos would have come and delivered these oracles. And really, this would have been hard for Amos because People from Israel didn't like people from Judah. Even though they used to be one nation, now they are completely separate in their, the way they are run, the way that um, they are governed, everything about them, even though they used to be one and were for a long time considered sister nations, they very much don't like each other. And so this period is one of really a crisis time because things are falling apart. And so God is like, okay, I need you, Amos. I've got to send you because this is like it for the nation if they don't hear these words. But unfortunately, the people continuously over and over again, they turned a deaf ear and they would not listen. So... Even though, you know, Amos is coming from the South, they still, because of their mindset, the way that they see people from the South, um, they are still not going to listen. And they won't listen to anybody, unfortunately. So let's talk about the dating for a little bit of Amos, because like all the other prophets, so most likely every book of the prophet will start out with uh, the kings that are reigning. And so this book is no different. So we see that Amos lived during the reigns of Uzziah, and he was the king of Judah. And so his reign was from 767 to 739 BC. And then it was the reign of Jeroboam II, which was the king of Israel. And I have the dates there for uh, Jeroboam II. And so the possible time frame for the book of Amos is 767 to 753 BC. And so Amos is uh, prophesying also when Hosea is coming on the scene and he is a little bit before Isaiah and Micah will prophesy. But they are all gonna have their message to the nations. And so if you want to do more historical background information, you need to go to 2 Kings to look at that. And those are the verses there. And so at this time, uh, Jeroboam II and Uzziah have come into power about the same time. And so the king of Judah and the king of Israel, they've come into power about the same time. And they both had a long, like prosperous reign. There was a lot of and expansion in their territory. Um, so they were really living at the height of their power, of their um, success. This was, uh, and it, it really was even more than, or I guess equaled what was at the time of David and Solomon. And so when we think about what was happening in David and Solomon's time and now with these two kings reigning, how great the nation was when David was reigning. I mean, they were conquering all the nations around them. They were gaining territory. And so now these these men, these kings, they are really once again at the height, but it is not without (laughs) its downfalls. Because even though there was a lot of economic and military, uh, you know, growth, And they were really at the height of things. And I have here that it was almost ideal for them. Their, uh, how they were using that economic wealth, how they were using their military power. Um, It was only increasing their materialism and really the injustice against people. And so at this time, because these two nations are at the height of their reign, these nations, the the superpowers, which are not really superpowers at the moment, so Assyria, Babylon, Egypt, all of these are relatively weak right now because Israel and Judah are at the top of their game. And that's why it was hard for especially the Israelites to imagine that what Amos was going to be speaking to them would even be come come true because it was, when everything's going for you, when you've got all the wealth you need, all the you know uh, huge military, you're expanding your, your nation, you're thinking, we've got it all, like nothing can come against us. And so they are really, I think that's why they're so deaf to, to what Amos is gonna say, because they are at the height of everything but really barely three decades later they would meet their fall. And so it's really interesting even to think about that how like when we feel like we're at the top of our game like what is our perspective? What is our um, what is our focus? Is it to get more or is it to Uh, focus on the Lord and ask Him, okay, God, where where do I go? What do I do? Do I stay here? Do I move on? Um, Because we can go after things, I think, that start out good. And it's like we talked about yesterday with uh, all the uh, prophecy and um, like ministries, they start out good a lot of times. And then they get sidetracked with, man, we're getting a lot of notoriety. We're getting a lot of, uh, you know, people wanting to hear us. And so you sort of sometimes lose focus of why you started what you were doing. And I think that this is what's happened with uh, the nation of Israel. They really have gotten off track with what they were supposed to be there for, like why they were given that land and what their purpose was. They have truly forgotten that. And so because of that, the Lord is sending these prophets, and Amos is the first one to actually try to bring them back on track. And so to continue talking about the time period, um, it's just interesting because very not a lot of times do you see references about like things that, are hap- that actually happened. Well, how do I want to say this? I guess, natural disasters that happen. So in Amos, there's, you know, several references to earthquakes um, and a solar eclipse that takes place. And I think that the reason why these are referenced is it gives, it gives context for what they were going through at that time, but then it also helps to give like uh, a, a timestamp in a sense of, okay, well, we know that this earthquake took place at this time. So if you, if you think about like major events that has taken place in your lives, um, so for me, like one that I, I always can go back to is uh, when 9-11 happened. And um, like I know specifically where I was, what was happening, um, what I was supposed to go do, but then like when that took place it's like that's a, like a time stamp in my mind i'm like okay that i remember that just because of the events that took place and then i've been in earthquakes before and i'm like i remember where i was i remember what was happening and like what happened right before it and then what happened afterwards and so um and so these things that take place it's like this reference marker and so i think that that's why this was referenced in Amos is because it was something that would give them a, a good reference point for what was happening at that time. Okay, and so if we look at the main idea of this book, and I've sort of hit on this a little bit with the very first PowerPoint that I showed you, but it is that God roars like a lion against social injustice in Israel because he is so against Injustice, and we've seen this already throughout. Even giving of the law, how he was making him, making them into a nation, and so he is going to roar. Uh, you know, and I I tried to find a um, a good uh, like soundbite of a, a lion roaring because it's it's said that like when a when a lion does roar, it can be heard up to like four miles. And so um, when you think about that, like in in this context of God roaring like a lion, he is truly like, this is his battle cry for the nation to return to him and to come back to his ways. And so uh, the reason that Amos was writing his book or these prophecies was really to show Israel the judgment that would be brought up on them because of their social injustice. And so this is a huge, it is the theme of this book. So if you don't get anything else from Amos, know that God is against social injustice and that is the whole thing that Amos is talking about. So what is Amos about?
0: Social <laughs>
1: Thank you. Some people are listening. <laughs> no, everybody's listening. So. Okay. And so I want to talk about some themes to trace or just to contemplate as you go back and are doing your homework or as you are reading through this book, um, as I know you will do when you get out of this school. And so what is God's character and nature? And I know that this is something that you theme trace, but asking the question, how does he reveal himself uh, in Amos? So Who does he reveal himself to be in Amos? And then this concept of social injustice versus justice. And so what do they look like? What is their fruit? So what is the fruit of justice and what is the fruit of injustice? And hopefully you could answer that without reading the book, (laughs) but... Um, but I, even asking that question and being able to identify, because I think a lot of times we can just say, oh yeah, injustice is bad, like let's not do that. But then when we really start to look at the fruit of these things, and we look at the fruit of what justice is, but then the fruit of what injustice is. And then we can look at our society, we can look at our own lives and we can say, what is the fruit of our, my choices? What is the fruit of how I'm living? Is it one that is bearing fruit for justice or is it bearing fruit for injustice? And then the last thing to really, um, theme to focus on in this book is the covenant relationship. And so how does covenant relationship work? And I know I have talked about this a lot uh, because covenant is such a huge aspect for God. And it's not something that we can just read about in the first five books and then say, okay, that's good. I learned it. I'm good because it will continuously come up. And because this is God's foundation for his relationship with the people. And so how does this covenant relationship, how is it supposed to work? And really, the theme or the key um, for this book is justice, because if Amos is going against injustice, then the whole key of this is how we uh, live just and right. And so the key verse is Amos 5.24. Somebody read that for me. It's on the screen, so you don't have to look it up. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever flowing stream. Yeah. So, when we think about our language lesson yesterday with this verse, what does this start to bring up in your mind? Emily. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. 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 think Also, it would suggest that like justice should be something that, like,
0: is natural. When you pour water on the ground, it goes
1: down the hill. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and if you pour yeah. a lot of water on the ground, a lot of it goes down the hill. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm You know, like if no one's doing
1: it then I know that seems like obvious, but the more of us that that decide to read the word, the more authority people reading the word will have. Yeah. Um, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anybody else? I keep looking at you. (laughs) I mean you're the cool kid. So, yeah, just thinking through this verse of let justice roll down like waters righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. So I have, I mean, even there's such a, I think, a piece that comes with this verse when I read it. Because this is how God longs for his nation to respond, to interact. And so even to think about how, you know, water does, it rolls, it is something that it doesn't, for the most part, doesn't stay in one place unless it's, you know, just a puddle. But if there's a river, if there's a lake, if there's an ocean, like it is constantly moving. And so you think about this water that's constant. Like if you've been in the ocean, you know that there are currents, there are waves, there's all these aspects of it, that it's constantly in motion. And so an ever flowing stream, that means it's never going to end. He never wants righteousness to stop. And so it's not just knowing the key verse of this book, but it's actually slowing down and thinking through, what does that mean for me? What does that mean for how I live my life? Because if this is how he wants the Israelites to live, to have justice roll down like waters, and righteousness, like an ever-flowing stream. How do we live that out now? So I want to give you just, you know, a few definitions because I think sometimes we can, um, we can think of these words and we're just like, oh yeah, justice. It's so easy. Or not easy to do, whatever whatever way you look at it. But this, uh, the definition of justice is this ideal of fairness, impartiality, especially in regard to the punishment of wrongdoing. And so the ideal of fairness and impartiality. Okay? And so I found this quote. It said that... um, Justice, by definition, is just behavior and treatment based on what is morally right and fair, to respect life, freedom, and the basic human rights is justice. Demanding what is right fearlessly benefits the entire human collection or collective. Never forget that justice is what love looks like in public. Okay, that sounds really good, doesn't it? But who is deciding what is morally right and fair? What is basic human rights? And what is love? Because if I had a million dollars, I would bet a million dollars that if you walked out in the street and you asked a random stranger what was morally right and fair, what were basic human rights and what is love, that it would probably be different than what you do. <laughs> Bless you. And so even our looking at this issue of justice, we have to have a compass or whatever, a a focal point, uh, a foundation, a starting place. We have to have that because if we don't, then all of these things are always going to be skewed. What is morally right and fair? What are basic human rights and what is love? Because like I said yesterday, if we knew what basic human rights were, then we wouldn't be having to debate if a newborn child less than seven days old could be murdered because they would have basic human rights. And what is love? Is love allowing a, and I know I've used this example before, but it's just so ludicrous to me, that is, is love allowing a, Three year old or four year old or five year olds to choose if they want to be a boy or a girl. Is that love? No. So we can read these grandiose like definitions or explanations of these words. But when we come down to it, what is just behavior? Because what I think just behavior is could be different from what Dave thinks it is or anybody else in this room. But hopefully, if our foundation is the word of God, then we have a common ground and we have a a basic understanding. And so this concept of justice is so huge, guys. And so the other aspect of this book and this verse that um, we've already read, we've talked about justice, but then also righteousness. And so righteousness is what is right, what is justice, the act of doing what is in agreement with God's standards. So not what's in agreement with the world's standards or the U.S. standards, but it's in agreement with God's standards. And so that doesn't mean that we read the word of God and we're like, well, that sounds really good, but I think I'm really mad at my neighbor, so I'm just gonna go kill him, even though the word says not to. So if I'm gonna be in agreement with God. That doesn't mean that I read it and then I go do what I want to do. That's when we have the choice. Are we going to choose life, which is walking in agreement with the Lord? Or are we going to choose death, which is saying, I know you say God, but I feel this today. I'm gonna go over here. And so these aspects of righteousness and justice. And really at this time, the best way, because I know these words can be like, we throw them around in Christianity because it's like the basis of what we know. But do we know how to live them out? Because with this book, I'm going to say that it was... Like, the best way to handle this word is to see it as a relational word and not just a behavioral word. And so what that means is that we are, well, let me say this. In Hebrew thinking, righteousness is a community thought and not just an individual thought. So. even in reading the covenant, it was about them coming together and making this commitment together. It wasn't just one person. Well, sometimes it was. But when, when they ratified the covenant with the whole community, it was all of them coming together. And so it wasn't an individual like, I am gonna do this all on my own. But it was them coming together and saying, as a community, we will uphold this law. We will uphold this covenant. And so they were aligning themselves, they were coming into agreement with God, with what He wants, with His interests, with what He was desiring for the nation. And so if this righteousness is right orientation with God, then that means that we are coming into alignment with what He is saying. And God's desire is for all of us to be treated equally, to be the same, not for be treated the same, not to be the same, and having equal rights. And so when we think about justice and righteousness, we are God's plan for humanity. We are now his hands and feet. Israel was God's plan for humanity at that time. He wanted them to be the example that was going to change the nations around them because they were gonna see how good God was. They were gonna see his justice, his righteousness, his faithfulness, his mercy, his goodness. But if we don't know what these words mean, just like I don't think the Israelites knew what these words meant. And so they didn't know how to actually live them out correctly. Or they just chose not to. But how are we going to live our lives? Because what we do today, the choices we make today will determine our future. I don't know if you all uh, heard that quote. Um, Let me find it here. I just sent it to my sister recently, so I've got it pretty handy. Um, so maybe not as handy as I thought it was. (laughs) Okay. So, sow a thought and you reap an action. You sow an action and you reap a habit. You sow a habit and you reap a character. You sow a character and you reap a destiny. So what does that say to you? You sow a thought. You reap an action. You sow an action, you reap a habit. You sow a habit, you reap a character. You sow a character and you reap a destiny. Every thought that we have determines the outcome of our lives. I think that's why it's so important that the Lord said, to take our thoughts captive, to renew our minds. Because if we're not doing that, then it's gonna be very, very easy to get off track (laughs) and to not be in alignment with the Lord. Do y'all have any questions, any comments before we keep on going? actually going to get in the book now. <laughs> this is all before. <laughs> oh. it's 355. It is 3.55. <laughs> so <don't> <laughs> okay, anything? Okay, so we are going to turn to chapter 1 of Amos and really these chapters, these first two are this judgment on the nations. And so even this starting out, these words that he is using after verse one, uh, starting in verse two, that he saw and he heard. And these words that he say after this are significant because these are the same words and imagery that Joel will use and also Jeremiah. And so, these prophets are constantly, you know, I'll say, borrowing from one another because their messages are so important. So it says, this is, um, this is what he saw and heard. So what Amos saw and heard. The Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The lush pastures of the shepherds will dry up and the grass on Mount Carmel will wither and die. But the aspect of this is that the Lord's voice will roar from Zion. And so even if you look at Joel um, 3.16, just flip a few pages over, it says the Lord's voice will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem, the exact same words that Amos is using. And so this is a message that he wants to be heard. You're not going to raise your voice unless it's important, right? Or unless you're so frustrated. (laughs) So remember that, that if the Lord is gonna roar at something, then this is something that he is passionate about. It's something that he wants to get their attention about. And so in verse three, it talks about, this is what the Lord says. These words are from God himself. And so in my book, all of these Um, words to these nations are in red because this is Amos delivering this message he is being the mouthpiece of God and so we have even starting in verse three that he's right in there on Damascus the people of Damascus have sinned again and again and I will not let them go unpunished and then he states out what they've done And then he goes to Gaza, the people of Gaza have sinned again and again, and I will not let them go unpunished. And this repeats itself with Tyre, with Edom, and with Ammon. And so what are the repeated words there? I just read them. Okay. Can you read it for me? For three transgressions of Damascus and Okay. Yeah. So, but just again and again, he's saying, like, these are the transgressions. So, does it say that with every nation? Yeah. So, that's the key word. Like, that's the key phrase over. Well, not. It's just the repeated phrase that's over and over again. He is calling out their sins, and he's like, this is it. Like, I am done with you all because of what you've done. And so if we look at even the location of all of these, we see that here, I've got them underlined, but I'll underline them again with red. So we have Israel here and Judah here. And so he is started out with Damascus, which is all the way up here. And then he went to Gaza, which is over here. And then Tyre, which is up here. Edom, right there. So he's sort of all over the place but Ammon, and then he ends with Moab. And so he is, if you see any, any uh, commonality, because here is Israel and Judah and all these people are around them. <laughs> so, um, so he is, you know, with this judgment that he is saying, he is moving closer and closer to Judah and Israel. And so he is not just saying that these nations have done wrong, which he is, he is naming out their sins, but he's also going to end with Judah and Israel because he knows that they are not sinless, that they are ones that have been in cahoots with all these other nations doing just like they have. And so when we look at even um, these, uh, especially with Judah and Israel, so if we look at Verse chapter, chapter 2, verse 7, and I um, talk about this with these next lines. It says, They trample helpless people in the dust, and they shove the oppressed out of the way. Both father and son sleep with the same woman, corrupting my holy name. And so if we go back to when I was here last time, last month, and we think about Leviticus 18, what was that chapter about? You can look back there if you need to. What was Leviticus 18 all about? You're not even looking. What? Okay. Why did you say that? Come on now. (laughs) So it was all about who they couldn't have sex with. I mean, it was like, do not have sexual relations with this person. Do not have sexual relations with this person. It was like over and over again, God was telling them, this is what I expect of you, to not have sex with this person, and this person, this this person, and this person. So what are they doing? Both father and son are sleeping with the same woman now. This is not upholding the law. This is not upholding the covenant. If we move on to chat, or verse 8, at their religious festivals, they lounge in clothing, their debtors put up a security. Okay, if we go to Exodus 22. Exodus 22:25 through 27 says, "If you lend money to any of my people who are in need, do not charge interest as a money lender would. If you take your neighbor's cloak as security for a loan, you must return it before sunset. This coat may be the only blanket your neighbor has. He, uh, how can a person sleep without it? If you do not return it and your neighbor cries out to me for help, then I will hear, for I am merciful." And so this clothing was supposed to be given back to the people so they wouldn't be cold at night, so that they would be cared for. And is this happening? Say no. <laughs> no, it's not. We keep on going and look at the rest of verse 8. In the house of their gods they drink wine bought with unjust fines. And so the wine should have been given as a restitution for a wrong. And they were drinking it. They were supposed to be giving these fines to the people who had been wronged. But they were partaking of it instead. So this is how they are gaining their wealth, how they're gaining their luxury, is by people who are trying to uphold the law, and they are robbing from them. So the Lord has started out with the judgment on the nations, but he is after Judah and Israel because they are sinning. And so their sins are being listed, but God's character is being revealed to them. And unfortunately, The covenant is being broken, and I really think it's breaking God's heart. It's coming out as anger and Him roaring. But why do we lose our temper so many times? It's because we're passionate about what we get angry about. We know that there's a right way to do things, and we get mad when that doesn't happen. Or at least I do. I won't speak for you all, <laughs> but I get frustrated when I see things that are so clear, at least to me, and other people aren't living that way. And so I know that this is breaking God's heart because he has been after them For how long now? I mean, we're at about 752 probably BC. Yeah, say it out loud. Yeah. So that he has been after them to get it right. And so I can understand why God is raising his voice at them. If you are a loving parent, are you gonna allow your child to continue to go down a road that you know is destructive? No. You're gonna do everything possible to try to correct them, to get them to see what they're doing, And so this is God's attempt at bringing them back into right relationship, teaching them what it means to live the covenant. And the reason why he's doing all this is Verse 10, it was I who rescued you from Egypt and led you through the desert for 40 years so you could possess the land of the Amorites. I chose some of your sons to be prophets and the others to be Nazarites. Can you deny this, my people of Israel? And so this this is why he's calling them back. It's all because of his character. His faithfulness to them and to the covenant. If we keep on going, we're going to run into the first oracle of this book. And it's in chapter 3. And it even starts out with um, God's unique relationship with Israel. And so, um, Hannah, would you read verse 2 in your, I don't know how it. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Therefore, I will punish you for all your iniquities. Yeah. So what is that, what does that speak to you? What's God communicating with them?
0: I mean, it's like He's punishing them out of His relationship
1: with them. Mm -hmm. It's not just some random judgment. He, he, yeah. I mean, it's like a dad to a kid. Like He might Mm -hmm. not punish some random child on the street, but He's gonna discipline His son. Yeah, Mm -hmm. yeah. So my the NLT says, from among all the families on the earth, I have been intimate with you alone. That is why I must punish you for all your sins. So if you think about even that, I mean that word intimate is so like, they could have used anything else, but to choose that word, that I have been intimate with you alone that he has not had this kind of a relationship with any other nation, with any other people. It has been with them. And so that is why he is gonna punish them. Because when you are in a, even a friendship with someone or a relationship, you share things that you wouldn't with other people you have a bond that you don't share with everybody because then it doesn't mean the same. And this is how God has been with them. I mean, to pull them out of a nation and make them his very own, to give them a a specific identity, to love them the way that he loved them. He has shared things with them that he hasn't shared with any other nation. And so God had made a covenant with them and so now he has no choice but to enforce it. And they know the boundaries, they know the consequences. They have been fully educated on them. or at least they should have been. And so because of their disobedience they would be led into exile. And so we have these seven questions that follow even this verse and they really they're very interesting. Can two people walk together without agreeing on a direction? Does a lion ever roar in a thicket without first finding a victim? Does a young lion growl in its den without first catching its prey? Does a bird ever get caught in a trap that has no bait? Does a trap spring shut when there's nothing to catch? When the ram's horn blows a warning, shouldn't the people be alarmed? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has planned it? It says, Indeed, the Sovereign Lord never does anything until he reveals his plans to his servants, the prophets. The lion has roared, so who isn't frightened? But even just looking at these questions, can two people walk together without agreeing on a direction? Yes or no? No. Because if I want to go to the movie, but you all are gonna go roller skating tonight, well then, what's gonna happen? Turn on the movie while we're roller skating. (laughs) No. (laughs) Like, if we don't agree on something, then I'm either gonna go by myself and you all are gonna do something or you're gonna change your plans. We either have to agree and walk together or we're not gonna walk together at all. There has to come a point where there is agreement on something. And this is what the Lord is asking of the people. He's wanting them to come into righteousness. Because he knows that his life for them is their only hope of survival. is if they come into agreement with him. But we know that punishment is coming, unfortunately. And we see this in verses 11 through 15. It says, therefore, the sovereign Lord says, an enemy is coming and he will surround them and shatter their defenses. He will plunder all their fortresses. A shepherd who tries to rescue a sheep from the lion's mouth will recover only two legs or a piece of an ear. So it will be for the Israelites in Samaria lying on luxurious beds and for the people of Damascus reclining on couches. So this is the first mention of Assyria coming. He's saying an enemy is coming. Now they may not know it's Assyria, but this is the Lord trying to get their attention. And so this is the first real, like, oracle that Amos is giving to the people. And then if we move on to chapter 4, we see this second oracle coming about, and it's, it's around this rejection of divine warnings. And so it starts out by saying, listen, well, my Bible, listen to me, you fat cows living in Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and who are always calling to your husbands, bring us another drink. The sovereign Lord has sworn this by his holiness. The time will come when you will be led away with hooks in your noses. Every last one of you will be dragged away like a fish on a hook. You will be led through uh, the ruins of the wall and you will be thrown from your fortresses. So why is this wording or this verbiage being used? Why are they being called fat cows? Well, if we even go back to, (laughs) you got an answer? Oh, okay. I thought you did. (laughs) So if we go back to Numbers 32, so I'm going to go back a little bit. So Numbers 32 verse 1, the tribes of Reuben and Gad owned vast numbers of livestock. So when they saw that the lands of Gezer and Gilead were idyllically suited for their flocks and herds, they came to Moses and Eleazar the priest and asked for this land. And so then if we go to verse 33 of chapter 32. So Moses assigned the land to the tribes of Gad, Reuben, and the half tribe of Manasseh. He gave them the territory of King Sion of the Amorites and the land of the king of Og of Bashan, the whole land with its cities and surrounding lands. And so why they, and so in my, in my footnotes, it says, you cows of Bashan, which, so why is this? Because they had settled in this land and it was fertile and it was good for livestock. And so they raised their livestock there. But these were the two and a half tribes that didn't go over into the promised land. They chose to stay in this land because it was good for what they wanted it for. And so when they are looking at this, Bashan was known for raising cows because it had this lush land. And so they were enjoying the wealth, but they were doing nothing for the poor. So it says you oppress the poor and you crush the needy. And you are calling to your husbands to bring us another drink. And so because this is their lifestyle, this is how they are choosing to go about the gifts that they've been given, this land that they didn't, well, I mean, they worked for it a little bit. They fought, but their ancestors did. They didn't. How they are using that gift. And so because of their lush. Um, luxurious lifestyles. This covenant curse in the form of these fish, fish hooks are gonna come into play because this is the metaphor for exile. That they will be dragged away with hooks in their noses. And they will be led through the ruins of the wall. So it's not even that the walls will be standing, but they will be in ruins. And so this is God being so explicit with them, being so clear of what is about to come about. And then if you move on in this oracle, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on it because it's already 4.18, Um, but it talks about the religious hypocrisy, how um, they they go and offer sacrifices to the idols at Bethel, but they keep disobeying. Um, They offer sacrifices in the morning and they bring tithes every three days. And they present bread made with yeast as an offering of thanksgiving. And they give extra voluntary offerings so they can brag about it. Is that why God likes our offerings? Hey, Maya, guess what I did? I went to church on Sunday and then I read my Bible for three hours and then I prayed for another two hours and then I went and evangelized for the rest of the day. How about that? (laughs) Yeah. It's like it's all for show. It's nothing with their heart. It's nothing about their relationship with the Lord. It's a checklist. Okay, I went to the temple, I gave sacrifices, I gave my offerings, and I did tithe, I'm good to go. And then it ends with this, these last verses, 6 through 13. And there's uh, repeated words. Can you all look through that and see what those repeated words are in 6 through 13? Their refusal to repent. It's like all these things were happening. I brought hunger to every city and famine to every town, but still you would not return to me. I kept the rain from falling when your crops needed it the most, but still you would not return to me. I struck your farms and vineyards with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured everything, but still you would not return to me. I sent plagues on you like the plagues I sent on Egypt and still you would not return to me. I destroyed some of your cities and those who survived were like charred sticks pulled from a fire, but still you would not return to me. What's happening here? Covenant curses. These are the curses being enacted out. There's famine, there's drought, there's plagues, which is disease. There's death. These are the covenant curses. And God is telling them why it's happening. Because they would not return to him. God is longing for a relationship. And he is shouting it from the rooftops. If you've never experienced rejection, then I wanna talk to you. (laughs) But, I mean, can you imagine the rejection that God is feeling right now. He has laid it all out for them. He has given them everything. And there is, he's only met with rejection. and so i can see how his heart is so frustrated but it's because of his depth of concern and love for them it says therefore i will bring upon you all these disasters i have announced prepare to meet your god in judgment you people of Israel. Even reading that scares me. I mean, seriously. Prepare to meet your God in judgment. Because I don't think that's ever how he wanted to be in relationship with them. but he has to be true to himself, right? He can't be all, well, I mean, justice is love, but he can't be all, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, I forgive you, oh, I forgive you again, oh, you did it again, I'll forgive you again. If you keep doing the same thing and you don't change your ways, What's the problem? Because it's definitely not God. But they were definitely abusing his love and his grace and his mercy. So let's not be people who do that. Let's not abuse his love and his forgiveness so that we can go out and do what we want and then ask for forgiveness the next day. And so Lord, we come before you and we thank you for We thank you for these hard books, but how good they are to read through and to learn. Because we can see what happened with the Israelites and we can learn from their mistakes. So let us not be people who trample on your heart, who trample on your love, and take it for granted over and over again. But Lord, we would be he- people that hear your roar and that we would respond. That we would not continue to sin again and again and again. But that we would come to you in humility and repentance. Longing to restore what has been broken. And so I'll even give you a moment. And if the Lord has highlighted something, an area where there has been a breakdown in your relationship and he has been calling for you to come back, to return to him. I wanna give you an opportunity to return. And so Lord, I pray that you would be specific, that you would be ever clear and that we would be quick to respond. Not out of fear of punishment, but out of love for who you are. Jesus, we thank you for how you speak. And how sometimes you are roaring at us to call us back to you, but sometimes it's gentle whisper. And so Lord, I pray that we would we would all respond. And thank you for these lessons. May they continue to shape our hearts and our minds and our actions, Lord. To live more for you daily. Amen.